American history is full of the good, bad, and everything in between. But in the end, these are our stories. Today's episode will discuss war crimes, deadlines, and the regulators. So pull up a chair and join your host Jacob for a brand new episode on Andersonville Prison. Such misery as this. Hello everyone and welcome back to a brand new episode of the History Book. Today we are continuing our Civil War History Month with another episode on a Civil War prison camp. But this time we are talking Union POWs and Andersonville in Georgia. So to begin, Andersonville is a common name for the prison in southern central Georgia, but the official name was Camp Sumter. Construction on the camp began in early 1864 with the decision to move Union POWs further away from Richmond with increased fighting happening around the Confederate capital. During the 14 months the camp operated, over 45,000 Union soldiers were imprisoned there. The camp originally covered about 16 and a half acres and was enclosed with a 15-foot stockade wall. The camp was enlarged in June of 1864 to 26 and a half acres with only two entrances. This, combined with the number of soldiers in the prison, allowed for about five and a half feet of space per prisoner. The first soldier was brought to Andersonville in late February 1864. By the end of June, the prison population had swelled to 26,000 men living in an area meant for around 10,000. This overpopulation was made even worse when the prisoner population swelled to its highest of more than 33,000 men in August 1864. Captain Henry Worse arrived in Andersonville in April of 1864 and remained as commandant of the stockade and its interior until May of 1865. Worse's behavior to prisoners ranged from helpful and sympathetic to an unhinged rage. He commonly gave threats of death to prisoners, and rumors of him murdering prisons were more commonplace. Confederate prison system was, much like the government, ineffective and inadequate, which Worse knew he couldn't control. So instead, he controlled the lives of Union POWs through verbal and physical threats. We will pick up his story at the end. Major Robert H. Kellogg described the entry to Andersonville as, quote, as we entered the place, a spectacle met our eyes that almost froze our blood with horror and made our hearts fail within us. Before us were forms that had once been active and erect. Stalwart men, now nothing but mere walking skeletons, covered with filth and vermin. Many of our men in the heat and anxiety of their feeling exclaimed with earnestness, Can this be hell? God protect us! And all thought that he alone could bring them out alive from so terrible a place. In the center of the hole was a swamp occupying about three or four acres of a narrowed limits, and a part of this marshy place has always been used by the prisoners as a sink, and excrement covered the ground, the scent arising from which was suffocating. The ground allotted to our ninety was near the edge of this black spot, and how we were to live through the warm summer weather in the midst of such fearful surroundings was more than we cared to think of just then. End quote. One other important landmark in the camp sticks out as well. A light fence was erected about 90 feet inside the stockade wall. This became a no-man's land that was meant to keep prisoners away from the stockade wall. It quickly became known as the deadline, due to the fact that Confederate guards would shoot without warning if anyone crossed or touched this line. 
the modern term for deadline may actually come from this. The only source of water in the camp was a branch of Sweetwater Creek, ironic, called Stockade Branch, which was also the camp's latrine. Right now, we're going to take a brief social media break, and when we come back, we'll discuss life inside the camp. Hello everyone, this is Jacob, the host of The History Book, here to remind you that you can find The History Book on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as on our website, www.thehistorybook20.wixsite.com backslash thehistorybook. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the episode. Thanks for staying tuned through that brief social media break. Now before we go further into camp life itself, it's important to say that the Confederacy was constantly plagued by a lack of supplies. But when they did have the supplies, conditions for these Union soldiers were still deplorable. Between food shortages, diseases, and the constant threat of violence, life was unbearable. Sergeant Samuel Corthwell described it as, quote, The camp was covered with vermin all over. You could not sit down anywhere. You might go and pick the lice all off of you, and sit down for half a moment and get up, and you'd be covered with them. In between those two hills, it was very swampy, all black mud, and where the filth was emptied, it was all alive. There was a regular buzz there all the time, and it was covered with large white maggots. End quote. Not only were the vermin an issue, but diseases constantly plagued the men there. A lack of vegetables led to scurvy. A lack of cream drinking water led to dysentery and a lack of proper shelter and clothing led to exposure. All things that killed these men much faster than bullets would in battle. The mortality rate in Andersonville is around 29% of the prison population. Sergeant Jasper Hall recalled, quote, Death was making rapid inroads in our ranks every day, for at least 50 were carried to the graveyard every day. It was common sight to see men laying in the hot sand, forsaken and alone, unable to help themselves, sweltering in a burning sun, and slowly but surely, dying. End quote. On top of these disease-infested wastelands were the prisoners themselves. The Andersonville Raiders became a major problem in the camp, led by Charles Curtis, John Sarsfield, Patrick Delaney, Terry Sullivan, William Collins, and Alvin T. Munn. These rogue Confederate prisoners terrorized the prisoners, stealing food, clothing, and other goods from their fellow soldiers. Their most common way to steal was to pick out a new prisoner from a group that looked promising, tricking them into trusting them, showing them a decent place to sleep, and beating and robbing them in their sleep. The group was highly organized, with each of the founding leaders having their own henchmen that organized their groups named after the leaders, such as Sarfield's Raiders. Because of their widespread stealing, the raiders came away with a scot pile of weaponry and a tent big enough to hold a hundred men. Their ability to steal food kept them well fed, which gave them even more advantage of the foes who were constantly ill-prepared to fend off a stronger, well-fed opponent. The crime of the raiders often led, directly or indirectly, to death. By stealing warmth or food, the victims were indirectly more likely to die because of the raiders. If a victim resisted the raiders, they could easily wind up dead anyways. However, resistance could also scare off the raiders, such as when one would-be victim hit a raider over the head with a spade and the rest of the ten backed away, which generally was a result. When threatened with significant resistance, the raiders would retreat. While this did offer some protection, it took until mid-June of 1864 
for real resistance to take hold in the camp. The first efforts revolved around small groups of prisoners, usually members of the same platoon or squadron, forming against the raiders, but higher organization was still needed. On June 29, 1864, that organization came. After a prisoner, simply known as Dowd, was beaten by the raiders, he came to the front gate of the prison and demanded justice from the Confederate guards. His complaints caught the attention of Captain Worse. Worse announced that all rations would be cut off if the raiders were not turned in. In response, an internal police force was allowed to operate with Captain Worse's permission. This police force was commonly known as the Regulators, although they had been operating in a camp for a while before Worse gave them actual policing power. With this new policing power also came the power to create a court, try for crimes, and deal out punishment, even death. The Regulators were able to round up the main offenders of the Raiders and had them tried and hanged by July 11, 1864. Sarsfield, Collins, and Munn expressed remorse and a lesser extent innocent. Curtis escaped his ropes and tried to flee before being caught and led back to the gallows, while also expressing no regret before being executed. While on the gallows, Curtis reportedly said, quote, It was my grandmother who said I would die with my boots on, and I guess it's coming to pass. End quote. Delaney expressed no regret and even said, quote, I'd rather be hanged than live here. End quote. All six of the guilty were buried separate from the general prisoners. Right now, we're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we'll talk about freedom from Andersonville. Thanks for staying tuned through that brief ad break. After the execution of the leader of the Raiders, Captain Worse paroled five Union soldiers to deliver a petition signed by a majority of the Andersonville prisoners to reinstate the prisoner exchange system and to leave Andersonville of some of its overcrowding. This petition was denied, and the parolees reported this back to their fellow inmates. It is fair to point out that by July of 1864, General Sherman was making his way to Atlanta and could have freed Andersonville, but he did not. In reality, Sherman would not have had the ability to care for the sick and dying of Andersonville, but he could have had the prisoners sent somewhere behind lines where they could have been taken care of. After Sherman's troops did pass by the area, Andersonville was reduced to a lower capacity. The prison was closed, and troops sent home after the war ended in April of 1865. This brings us to the outcome for Captain Henry Worse. After he was captured and arrested by Union troops on May 7, 1865, Worse was tried by a special military commission convened with Major General Lew Wallace presiding. Worse was charged with combining, confederating, and conspiring to injure the health and destroy the lives of soldiers in the military service of the United States, and for the violation of the laws of war, to impair and injure the health and to destroy the lives of large numbers of federal prisoners. He was accused of 13 acts of personal cruelty and murder, and he was found guilty of all accounts except for one. During closing statements, Judge Advocate General Joseph Holt, also the prosecutor for the Lincoln assassination trials, vilified Worse, even calling him more of a demon than a man. Worse awaited his execution in Old Capitol Prison, and sent a letter of clemency to President Andrew Johnson, who did not answer the letter. But one of Worse's attorneys 
was told by an emissary from the high cabinet official that if Horst implicated Jefferson Davis in his crimes, his sentence would be commuted. Horst claimed he knew nothing of Davis and refused. He was hung at 10.32 a.m. at the Old Capitol Prison in Washington, D.C. Unfortunately, his neck did not break and he suffocated. He was buried right next to the gallows, much like the Lincoln conspirators who were executed at the same prison. Worse's death made him only one of two men executed for war crimes during the Civil War, the other being Champ Ferguson, who killed over 100 men himself. This seems like a fitting end to Andersonville, a hell of reunion soldiers that should have ended with the death of one man, but the physical, emotional, and mental scars remained. Right now, we're going to take a brief music break, and when we come back, we'll talk about what's coming next. Thanks for listening to Civil War Month. Our next episode will be on May 4th, and it will cover Student Demonstration Time, the Kent State Massacre. As always, this has been Jacob with the History Book, and I'll see you next time.